Hi, this is David Leach, and this is the director commentary for the home entertainment version of Hobbs and Shaw. There's a universal logo. Really excited to get a chance to do this movie. My producing partner and my wife, Kelly McCormick, had found out that they were doing this spinoff. And um, somehow with Chris Morgan and through agents and lawyers, <laughs> we got the script. Kelly and I read it, and uh, we saw this opportunity for something really fun in this world. The studio was really supportive of making something that was uh, unique with my perspective, but also with the Fast and Furious brand. You can hear this title track, uh, Time in a Bottle, going on. I love to start my movies with uh, music. If you've seen Atomic Blonde or Deadpool, uh, music is such a great way in to access emotional points for the audience. So they have great music execs here at Universal, Mike Knobloch and Rachel Levy. Rachel put together long playlists for me at my request of like things that I felt were thematic for the film. Time in a Bottle was one of them. This Time in a Bottle is actually a re-record from a group called Youngblood, and they came in and did a special version for us, contemporized it, and you know made it cool. You can see here Vanessa Kirby being a badass and the entrance of our villain, soon to follow Idris Elba. But um, Vanessa went through the traditional training that we do with 8711 crew, and um, she became uh, pretty proficient in this martial arts stuff, and you'll see throughout the movie. Time in the Bottle was sort of thematic for, I guess, the characters in this movie. As you see, that's the bottle that I was referencing. Everyone in this movie is kind of estranged from people they care about, whether it's Shaw with his sister or Hobbs with his brother or even Idris and Jason's character and their past brotherhood and, and they were brothers in arms. I guess the idea is that it shouldn't take global stakes to reconnect with the people that you care about. And that was sort of the bigger theme on top of all this crazy action you're about to witness right now. Blam! <laughs> so Idris has a great martial arts background. He's actually kickboxed. I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary that he did, but it's pretty amazing him preparing for a fight. So he was the perfect adversary for two of the biggest action stars on the planet. This scene was so incredibly fun to shoot with the stunt guys, and it's, it's sort of right up our alley in like what we do. My sensibility as a director, I work closely with the stunt team, but I also work closely with Jonathan Sella, who you can see created a incredible lighting palette here. We wanted to go a little bit more heightened reality, a little bit more comic book graphic novel -y feel. Composition is really big to us and we try to most times shoot with one camera so we can really focus on the shot and like make the one shot tell the story and and sort of flow from uh, shot to shot and like in, in sort of the first pass of how we see the movie going together visually. So that's where you get sort of the graphic sensibility of the stuff that I like to do. There is an extended version of this. On the Blu-ray, you can probably see there was a grenade left here and it explodes, blam! And Idris's character gets launched and then we see that the suit is actually explosion-proof and bulletproof and has this new technology 
from the company Etion that he works with. This is a really uh, interesting thing, a funny, funny caveat. Everybody throws stuff over their shoulder in this movie. I don't know why, but you'll notice that Dwayne throws the shot glasses over his shoulder. You'll see later, Isa Gonzalez throws the champagne glass over her shoulder. I want her on the run with no place to turn. You might recognize Daniel Bernhardt from Atomic Blonde and from John Wick. Funny story about Daniel. My first stunt job was on his movie called Perfect Target back in 1994. And he was the star of the movie. He was going to be the next Von Dom. He did a series of sort of B movies. And he's a great fight guy and a great actor. And I like to use him in uh, fight roles. So this split screen idea was a big pitch that I had at the script phase. It's like, how do we access these characters immediately and sort of see the odd couple nature of them? Just look at like, um, they're different, but they're the same. And so we came up with this idea of shooting a split screen and Jonathan Sella and I wanted to match lens sizes and focal lengths. And we built the sets with David Shuneman, the production designer. So everything was allowed to have the same graphic sensibility and the same distance from camera. So it could be a perfect match. Even in those dolly push-ins, you see it's a perfect match, perfect size. It was a lot of logistical work to make this happen for something so simple. But again, it was sort of emblematic of what I was trying to do with these characters. It's like, yes, they are diametrically opposed, but they are very similar when you get down to the core of them. And I thought this was just a fun visual way to present that to the audience and um, sort of subliminally take that sort of uh, messaging away. You can see they both get into some cool, sexy environments lit by Jonathan Sella and designed by David Schooneman. I like this, again, like movie magic, right? It's just like three walls and some foreground and it feels like a nightclub. There's uh, Dwayne throwing the shot glasses over his shoulder. Who the hell are you? It's fun. This is one of my favorite sort of fight scenes in the movie. There was time where we were playing with something that was a little more heightened. We were going to play with uh, source music during the fights. And we had a K-pop band that was actually playing music in the tattoo parlor. And then we had a sort of like a Russian opera thing. And we kept cutting back from K-pop to Russian opera. It was really funny, but it also became a little distracting and it sort of took you out of the fights because it was so funny. So um, in the end, I opted for some great score from Tyler Bates. Ooh, I love that. Bang! Tunk! <laughs> so, yeah, Tyler Bates, you can hear him riffing. You can hear classic Tyler Bates guitars. Speaking of the score, I wanted to have a throwback sort of a lethal weapony bluesy guitar vibe connecting these two in sort of the spirit of those 80s and 90s uh, buddy cop movies. And so as much as there's contemporary score and great orchestration, there is a bluesy rock and roll guitar. I love the kick to the balls, I have to say. Like, makes me laugh every time. You're gonna die! Ooh! <laughs> 
that funny, that window break is, uh, give you another shout out to a great um, person on this movie is Dan Glass, who's my visual effects supervisor. And he's sort of uh, prolific in the, in the world of visual effects. And we met together on the Matrix movies. And it was really fun that we get to work together. Okay, you get the idea. I've been tracking some dark web chatter about a super virus that's coming up on the auction block. Why don't you tell me about it? I swear, I don't, I don't know. I don't like that answer. You know, this scene here, there's some interesting lines, and actually we had an extended version of the opening of the movie where we started on the close-ups from the CIA office that come later in the movie. And then during this scene, we intercut the discovery of the virus, Vanessa and Idris' scene in the underground, and it becomes more of a sort of a non-linear version of the movie. I think the studio really felt that the linear version, sort of the cold open, was more universal, I should say, and, and more international and like clearer storytelling for international audience. So I was actually really good with both versions and I, and I like them both. So it was really good that, you know, we landed on this and it really worked for the audience. Here we are entering the um, pancake house scene. And there are some fun additional moments in the extended version of this. Dwayne has a, a joke that is uh, referential to Meg. You know, he has a movie idea. And the movie idea he's describing is basically the plot of Meg. It's really funny, but um, we weren't ready for sort of the comedy at this point in the movie. There was a moment where I thought like, the tone could shift because we've kind of set up the stakes. I was going to use this. I found it in the garage drawer. That's you. Here we're, we're kind of setting up the sort of first emotional journey for Hobbs, setting up the need to reconnect with his brother and the need to, you know, reveal the truth about his family to his daughter. And that um, maybe being confronted with like, some choices he's made and and some mistakes and it's a really sweet scene just gotta do your best and move on elena the actress sort of jumped out at the auditions and she was became a clear choice pretty quickly um, she's a sweetheart and uh for being um pretty new in the business she's got incredible acting chops thank you so much here you go cheat day little self-referential a little over the top, but gets a big laugh. Is that really necessary? Come on. Now, this is such a beautiful scene, and like, again, one of my favorite uh, dramatic scenes in the movie. When you have the luxury and the uh, privilege of Helen Mirren showing up on your set, it's a pretty special day. Her and Jason have uh, had an incredible natural chemistry, and. Um, it's funny, it was a little bumpy for the first hour of the shoot. We were trying to get the words right, and, and Chris Morgan came to set, and we were sort of, you know, rewriting a few things and just trying to make it feel more natural in Jason's voice and in Shaw's voice. And But once we landed it, it worked so well. And it's so real and sentimental. It's a lovely scene. Have you spoken with your sister? You know I have a mommy. 
coming up, you're going to see these flashback sequences that um, the idea that we could connect Hattie and Deckert with this nostalgia that was sort of layered in music. So I wanted to use the music to obviously pull at the heartstrings and give you sort of a nostalgic feel. And also these great actors, local London kids that portrayed Hattie and Shaw. We created these flashback moments where they uh, came up with their griffs and their heists and uh, named them after rock stars. Later on in the movie, it's a sort of a plot point. And like, you know, they have this innate ability to work together because they've been working together since they were kids. And all they really needed to do was reconnect. Well, one day, I just hope that I will... You can see we're setting up sort of the emotional journey of um, Shaw here and him reconnecting with his sister. Well, you know what I say. Never say never. I also wanted to sort of lay this Easter egg, and not Easter egg, it's more the Shaw family. They're all chips off the old block, and you see during the phone call, she picks her handcuffs. And we'll see Hattie later picks her handcuffs, and they all sort of have this criminal ability. Lucas. So this next scene is crazy, and I think it gets big response from the audience. I called Ryan to see if he would like to play Locke, this character Locke. And um, he came out for a day as a favor. I said, look, there's a lot of exposition that you have to give that's sort of setting up the virus and sort of the journey for our heroes. Would you come do it? Because sometimes exposition is really boring. He and Chris Morgan took a stab at the pages. Ryan wrote a bunch of the material for his character, and he sort of created this lock out of thin air. And um, he came up with the idea for the best friend's locket and the tattoo, and, like, reading the pages, I was laughing hysterically. So um, I was so grateful that he was working on um, a Michael Bay movie in Europe at the time. He flew to London on the weekend to shoot with us and then, you know, flew himself back. It was just a, as a favor. And uh, it turns out to be one of the funniest scenes in the movie. Your body into a giant bag of hot soup. She is nine. Seen worse. Where? Game of Thrones, Janet's house. I've never Lannister always pays his debts. You're never going over there again. But there's a new wrinkle in the case, Rebecca. The specifics. There is an extended version of this. <laughs> That's it, when he hands her the folder, I still laugh. In yeah, there's an extended version of this that has a lot more jokes, you know. Dad, are all spies that pretty? It was really a pleasure to work with Ryan on Deadpool 2 and learning from him. He's a comedic genius, and he's been doing comedy a long, long time. And, um, you know, as steeped as I am in action, it was really good to collaborate with someone who is so versed in comedy. By the way, I'm a huge fan of comedy and I'm a connoisseur of comedy and I feel like I know a lot about comedy and timing innately, but I was only magnified by my experience working with him. And so it was really fun to do these scenes with him and uh, make something special and hopefully make a new character for the, you know, Hobbs and Shaw world. You know, if we really break this movie down, there's a lot of opportunity for the world to go different places and Hobbs his own movie Shaw his own movie who knows right 
Locke and showing up in everybody's movie. Like, you're going to see cameos, other cameos come up soon if you haven't seen the movie. It's a pretty rich world of actors. I mean, Idris alone, like, you could have a Brixton movie. You could have Vanessa have her own movie. Here I am pitching a lot of movies to the studio. Let's see if they make them. Not just yours and mine. Uh, he knows I can see him, right? He knows nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> so what's it gonna be, Becky? Get a partner up? I love this idea that his middle name is Rebecca. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. Uh, that was a, a Ryan idea. We are not best friends, friends at all. And to wash your back. Here, it's a lot of back. back. A lot of back. I got you. Hey, same old Hobbs, huh? Same old lock. All right. Who's on the case? So it was kind of like, okay, now we have to figure out a way to top that. And how do you top that? Well, I pulled from the Deadpool 2 alumni. You don't know what I'm telling. Or who I'm and here we have Rob Delaney, who came out for a day to work with Jason. And he... Uh, he obviously plays the other side of the London liaison for the CIA. Again, he has to give a lot of exposition, but he's got to, you know, help enhance the jokes that we're uh, trying to play off here. Really funny, gracious. I always thought, oh, we could do a lock, lock and lobe. His name is Agent Loeb. It'd be a lock and lobe. It would be... As Kelly McCormick says, it's uh, three titles. It's The Fast and Furious Presents, Hobbs and Shaw's, Lock and Lobed. <laughs> Could be the best movie of next summer. Who knows? And so here we are, Jason's character being presented with this the problem. You know, his sister, the audience technically doesn't know yet that this is his sister, but she's the one who has the virus. And the capsules are in her blood. We've and everybody wants this weapon. We've got everything you could need at your disposal. And we're bringing and 72 hours, she is going to go viral. But she does. So coming up is another little split screen riff. Hey, is your guy going to freak out when he finds out who my guy Both these scenes were enhanced by Ryan and by Rob. And uh, Rob actually had this great riff about, you know, my guy beat me up in a bar in Krakow 11 years ago and uh, doesn't even remember me, so. Well, my guy beat the shit out of me at a bar in Krakow 17 years ago and he... 17 years ago, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> we all have our histories. Anyway, the fate of the world here. It's the fate of the world. The fate of the world. Is in their hands. Serious stuff. I mean, you think so we're kind of fun, like, setting up this tone in the first act where we can laugh and, and go on this ride. Here we are. This is what people have been waiting for, the main events. These two guys giving each other a hard time. It's this dynamic between these two is why I decided to do the movie and why when I was offered the chance to do it, I said yes, because they do have an undeniable chemistry and it's really fun to see them tear into each other. So it's all good. Tell your mom I said hi. Actually, I'll tell her myself. Don't you ever talk about my mother? I'll put this was a scene, funny, the first day. We were shooting with Jason for a week and a half before Dwayne's schedule allowed him to be there. 
So this is the first day they were going to get to work together. So it's a little bit stressful and like, how is this all going to work? And, you know, how are these guys chemistry in real life? And um, so we had a script page meeting before call and we did a read through and we bounced around lines and we changed things. And it was just a real supportive sort of uh, collaborative environment. It's your face, your big, stupid face. Looking at it makes me feel like God. It's projectile vomiting right in my eyes. And it burns. It really burns. Those two close-ups are sort of a motif that I was trying to set for the rest of the movie. When we go into those comedic bits and like really sort of see into the character's eyes, there's that line that Shaw says where it's like projectile vomits right in my eyes and it really burns and then he closes it and he's like, and it really burns. Kelly McCormick, my creative producer, was like, we got to put that the second it really burns back in. And I withheld for a while and then I, the minute we put it back in and we tested it with an audience, it's like it is sort of that physical pain that he feels <laughs> is so funny and it gets a massive laugh. That is a, it's a really sort of tight scene. You can see the beautiful set we built. We can get to work. The beautiful lighting by Jonathan. We already have two dozen agents scouting. Don't you talk back to me, Opie. Uh-uh. I just care about the coverage. I ain't going to ask you again. Then pull it up. So the, there's this graphic on the screen that sort of explains how he's going to find her. And this has been sort of a funny, sort of fun point of contention. Like, how do we illustrate that what he's doing is like, looking at the cameras and then inverting the camera. So we look at the camera coverage and you invert the camera coverage and you see obviously the areas where she could walk that have no CCTV camera coverage. Here's a little bit of an homage to Atomic Blonde. You see the hoodie and the trench coat, but different colors. Intentional or unintentional, I don't know. Working with Vanessa, we were talking about who her character was and it like, you know, did she kind of have a sort of a, she had a rougher side, you know, granted she's MI6 and she's been around the world and she's a seasoned spy, but she also, you know, when push comes to shove, her east side roots come out and um, she's a little tough and rough around the edges. So we wanted to give her a little bit of a rough look and you can see kind of the roots, like the, the dyed roots. This is part of the character we were building with her. Here we're into sort of a mu another music moment, right? I wanted to just sort of set that into the world and sort of intercut Hattie and uh, Deckard so you can kind of see again like how similar they are as brother and sister. It's not unlike the visual storytelling I was trying to do with the split screen. This is just a different style of that visual storytelling where we're, you know, using the intercutting to like show how brother and sister are alike, like she's a chip off the old block. And it's gonna dovetail into this fight scene where we see that they're both uh, tough as nails and um, they fight similarly, you know. Again, she's a chip off the old block. It was really good juxtaposition with these two scenes. Originally, we were going to show them separately, 
But as we started to put the movie together, I intercut things a lot more by choice. Part of it was to compress the movie, and, you know, the original sort of edit was about 2.45. But more than compression, it was more about, like, again, like, the characters and, like, what I'm learning here about Hattie as she's fighting dirty and what I'm learning about Deckard. It actually shows how similar they are, you know, in their styles. Uh, tonally, too, it also allowed for the comedy to be broad on one side and the violence to be sort of tempered by the comedy on the other. It's like this fight gets toughened up by the violence of the other fight. That fight gets softened by the camp of this one, and it becomes one sort of fluid piece. Christopher Rouse was uh, my editor, and I don't know if you know him, but he is a master editor and a journeyman and has been doing it a long time. He's Academy Award winner, really prolific. He has done the Bourne films, and he's also an editor that they call to fix movies when they're in trouble. I learned a lot from him on this movie, and this is sort of one of those uh, editorial projects where you're just like, you can see his hand and his work and picking the moments to cross cut, you know, finding the rhythm of the song. It's really a, kind of a beautiful sort of exercise in editorial when I watch it. Bet you wish you didn't take it easy now. I wish a lot of things right now. Here this sort of the, we wanted to use this as sort of the beginnings of Hobbs and Hattie's relationship. There is sort of a dance and a flirt going on. And it is a courtship in a weird way. Again, like, their romance doesn't fully develop and it becomes more of a respect and a friendship than maybe there's tension and sort of a what if and like, who knows kind of ending. But we wanted to make sure that we had the building blocks and they felt authentic and this was sort of a fun way to set up the sort of original, you know, their arc and their path. Here we see Deckard sort of landing on the grenade. The grenade is sort of the uh, talisman for the Shaw family. It's like they're all into explosives. Here we are, Etion. Perfection is a... And we're hearing the director speak. In ourselves and in the pursuit of a perfect... We wanted to create a villain who was formidable and I think, you know, adding sort of this heightened sort of physicality to Idris, who's already formidable, would make it you believe that, you know, our guys might not be able to make it out. In terms of this Etion and this sort of bigger agenda, this idea that technology may one day take us over and technology may be to the benefit of all mankind or it may be the fall of all mankind. And sort of posing that question through Idris, who is like struggling with it in his own way. Is he, you know, the more machine he becomes, the more humane he is. But is that really true, or is he being deluded um, by the machine itself? Where's the virus? This scene, again, one of my favorite scenes, and in the extended cut, there's a very long version of this, and it's actually cut to uh, the tango music. And um, this was intentionally shot to be cut as a tango. And 
we were reprising the tango later in different parts of the movie as we sort of like followed their relationship through the film. I think it became a little too stylized and heightened for the the brand of fast, but it's a very fun moment as you watch them. He actually starts the tango music on his phone and it kind of plays his source throughout the scene. And there's a little bit of flirtation and there's a little bit of uh, back and forth chess playing before we get to the stakes where we're at right now. But either way, the world thinks that you're a murderer and a thief. So you're not going anywhere or getting any goddamn phone call until you give me some real answers. You have no idea what is happening here. Then tell me, help me I understand. Then you're I can't wasting my you're wasting I missed it, but, you know, I guess after years of directing movies, you learn that, you know, the storytelling process is about whittling things down and, like, you want the movie to fall forward. And, like, there were a lot of stories to service in this film, a lot. You know, Hattie's, Hattie's and Hobbs's relationship, Hattie's and Shaw's relationships, Hobbs and Shaw's relationship, Sean Brixen's relationship. I mean, and they all have a backstory, or they're all revealing before our eyes. And it. <laughs> no, Nietzsche. Because I'm like. And then there's the plot of the virus, and it's a lot of things to get out, and still have fun, and still have room for these character moments like this. The young gentleman uh, on the left of screen is Kirk. He is a stuntman, and a lot of times stuntmen get to play little acting roles like this. You don't have a line or two. I did a lot of roles like this, and um, you got reactions, and you may, you know, but you can see like Kirk is actually delivers the goods, and like, you know, he has these great facial expressions, and it makes me laugh. I'm a huge supporter of my, my stunt uh, brethren, and um, it's so much easier, honestly, to shoot with a stuntman because the fight scene goes a lot faster. Um, they're experts at it. They know where to be for camera. They just work every day. Where'd you hear that? Here's one of our many sort of physical prank gags, visual gags. Uh, me and the spy lady were not flirting, all right? And then comedy, at the end of the day, the comedy that transcends into international is all sort of this physical type stuff. And um, a lot of that comes from, you know, the pioneers of it, Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, and then the person who I think it's the best of all time is Jackie Chan. And Western, Western audiences may not know how much Jackie Chan is really given to the action world. Yeah, there's a lot of movies from the 80s and 90s that were um, ripping off gags from Jackie movies that he was doing in Hong Kong at the same time. And, like, if you want to find physical comedy or you want to find really interesting ideas for action, it's sometimes good to just surf through your Jackie library. <laughs> He's forgotten more about great action moves and uh, ideas than most people could ever have come up with, so... Oh, really? I eat bullets all day long. Oh, for breakfast or lunch? Because it's dinner time. I'll count down for you. Three, two, hearts! Three! Put that down. Put your greasy sausage fingers off of us. What are you doing here? Saving you. Who's that I need to be saved? Here's a fun moment. We'd always hoped that we could keep this reveal for the movie, but I think early on in materials, they kind of gave it away, and it's it's hard because... Once you see Vanessa move, you realize, oh my God, she's, you know, there's more to her. Um, she's got to be related to Shaw somehow. These guys really did a great job of like becoming brother and sister, and I think it's completely believable and, and plausible. Embedded in capsules. I need to find a way to get them out. I love this shot. 
So we actually hooked her up to a wire there and blew air and rubber glass and like she did the stunt. It was pretty amazing. She's pretty badass. Here um, we have the reveal, the second reveal of Brixton, the Idris character. Now we used to have a scene at the top floor here in one version of the movie. And then I put some most of that dialogue down at the bottom. And so it was really just because I wanted to make sure that we kept the urgency of this scene and that our heroes didn't just have another standoff with exposition. And so um, we sort of cut it in a different way. Chris Rouse said, let's just get her out the window. Um, and then I did a couple pickups on the street in additional photography where we got that exposition out that we needed. You can see this is a beautiful set we build at Leavesden Studio. Now or never. Here, this joke is pretty funny. Setting up the one, two, three. I remember early on in the script stage, working with Chris Morgan and Drew Pierce, visualizing this gag. On three, one, two, and go out. Uh, it's pretty close to being scripted. This set piece was the brainchild of Chris Morgan, who is you know, the crazy architect of most of these fast movies. And um, if you want to spend money and have a big set piece, he's the guy to call. Like, he comes up with these crazy ideas. If you notice the spider webbing on the window, we had to put the spider webbing over Dwayne's face as to mouth the f you. We could not have the f you. The MPAA recommended we take it out because we had the one you, which is the dueling shot close-ups that you saw earlier. And so we, we were really at times riding the line on PG-13. You know, at the end of the day, we did want to make sure that we were reaching sort of this family four quadrant audience. And it wasn't like, I felt like I lost anything. It was just um, trying to get educated in what's acceptable. I'm used to making our movies, so. Here we get to see for the first time that Brixton is enhanced and he has this ability to calculate things. And this idea that he can take in sort of this big data, calculate it and know what's gonna happen. So he has this sort of speed and predictability nature. He also has a suit that's bulletproof and we learn about the beginnings of his and uh, Shaw's past relationship. Lucky for you, I am. Yeah. Nice so we were actually shooting on the streets in London. We had short days this day. It was freezing out. Doesn't look like it. We lost light at four in the afternoon. So it was really like, how do we shoot this fast? Pretty amazing. Jonathan Sella could um, move fast when he has to. It's down in the financial district, so we are there. We are in London. We are on the streets of London, locking it down, doing crazy stuff, blowing up cars. It was pretty, uh, pretty epic three days. Stop! Hey, get in the car. We're all going. No, you. Just the go. I said, we're all going. 
Disable the car. I need the girl alive. There's a lot of fun uh, extra lines in the extended scenes inside the car. This movie was a constant sort of um, ride the line with tone. Like, when do we want to be on stakes? When do we be on a joke? And the way I shoot is I try to give myself as many options as possible. Here, that's the back lot of Universal, by the way. So we had some additional photography to sort of, we needed to shorten the sequence. And um, I had to create a transition for Brixton to catch up. So we did a little bit of additional photography on the back lot of Universal, and I have to say it was really one of the funnest days of shooting to be on that nostalgic back lot and then uh, work with all my L.A. stunt friends and create this little bit of action, right, coming up here. You might want to... This is all the work of Simon Crane, a second unit director, who um, we go way back. I was a stuntman with him on Troy and Mr. and Mrs. Smith um, when he was directing Second Unit on those movies, and he came in to shoot Second Unit for us in this sequence. This is the stuff we do in the back lot. This alley is all back lot, additional photography. This gag, uh, my stunt friends, uh, Chris Palermo, designed it. He's journeyman stunt man. I've known him since I started in the business. We uh, lived in a shitty apartment together. It's fun. It's hard not to get sucked into the sequence because this thing really turned out well. And again, like, here we had this gag, another crazy Chris Morgan moment of, like, what if Hobbs just grabs a guy off a motorcycle? <laughs> and um, he does it. Very good. There's a lot of digital work in that moment, and um, there's some great effects houses that came through and helped us. The sequence is double negative, and... They really did try to outdo themselves. We see that this tech company, Etion, has some pretty crazy equipment. And one of them is this motorcycle that is able to transform. And I remember when these shots started to come in, and I was like, holy crap. That is amazing, and people are going to flip out. really love it and I think um, in future installments if let's say we bring Brixton back who knows like maybe he didn't die when he fell off the rocks like we can bring that motorcycle back to do amazing things and it could be really fun so they shot this second unit in Glasgow so really it's a combination of London Glasgow and LA backlot that put that sequence together. Going to war, then. Okay. 
So coming up, we're shooting at the Naval Yard, Naval Academy in London. We shot plates at, at Piccadilly, but it was pretty funny. This day, we just ran out of lights so early that later on, you'll see we were actually lighting night for day. Update. This is actually the inside of the McLaren plant. And when I scouted the location for the cars and met with the people, I'm like, hey, do you think we could use this as the, the evil lair for the tech cult called Etion? And so the locations department put together uh, a proposal and they let us shoot inside the McLaren factory. This is where they do all their presentations. And um, it just felt like it had this tech cult vibe. Just got real. Here's where I'm talking, like, those are plates for Piccadilly. I think Dan Glass, visual effects, shot them, and... Either most we owe me and plenty of dark money. UK. And delusions of saving the world by augmenting the human race. That's it. It's really sort of fun putting together this idea that they are, like, this Illuminati sort of, like, puppet mastery... If you don't fit ...secret sort of company that has tentacles all over the world and a mercenary army and money and, um, you know, and power and able to reach, you know, reach a lot of people to enforce their agenda. Your name's Jordan. She's going nowhere with you. When it comes to the fate of the You know, the idea that this virus would um, allow them to get rid of the people who can't accept the technology that they want to put into the people. And we were kind of the idea of leave the technology idea of mystery. But at the core of the idea is that they basically want to turn us all into machines and sort of to work under them. And they only want to give it to the strong. So there's sort of this sort of fascist underpinnings of that. And, and then there's this, um, this idea that they have control over those that they put the technology in. And so this director, whose Idris is talking to, is sort of creating his world in his vision. And it is a world that he will ultimately control everybody in it. And I tried to leave that a little bit more subtle and a little more sophisticated and a little bit more of a mystery so we can unpack it in, in, in the future and really just focus, focus on Brixton as a character and his relationship with Shaw. We'll later find out in future installments that, you know, the director, who's ever behind the curtain here, has a relationship with Hobbs. And, you know, this company's not going away. And, um, you know, again, technology may save us, but it may destroy us. And that's sort of a big sort of theme out there. Sorry, I don't follow. I want them turned. I want them working for the cause. Understood? They can't be turned. What makes you so certain? The last time we asked, I got shot in the face. That makes me very... I remember shooting this scene um, with Idris. We were riffing on pages, and we were improvising, and I was kind of doing the off-camera to take him different places because I collaborated closely with Idris on his character. He really wanted to make sure that he wasn't just a one-dimensional henchman or villain. He really wanted to have some other crisis going on, and so he has the relationship with Shaw, but he also has this director who is his boss, who is, uh, also has the ability to unplug him at any time. And so his journey to be a villain is also not 
Not as easy as you'd think. It's complex. Watch this. I lock. Everybody's safe. Everybody's great. I'm actually on a roll. This always gets a laugh. It's actually something that I just shot, honestly, because I was waiting for, uh, we were waiting an hour for DJ, and I'm like, hey, get over there, and we just sort of riffed on a moment. Like, what if you were listening in on the call, and like, it was a moment that we just came up with quickly to sort of explain that Hobbs was covering all the bases to protect his family, and um, just to remind the audience that he's not a negligent father. Tell us everything you know. I love this set, and this is in East London. Um, and it was an old brewery. And our department had, you know, dressed it and brought in this, all the scientific equipment, and we sort of created this uh, this queen sort of like layers where we could write on, and it looked like he's sort of like diary of a madman, right? He's been writing formulas for weeks and weeks trying to figure out how to solve this, uh, find an antidote for this virus. They told me they wanted to save the world through science. I believed in their cause. I developed the snowflake. Here, you guys know Eddie um, Marzen, um, worked with him many times on Deadpool 2, on Atomic Blonde. He's always a pleasure to work with. Incredible actor and professional and just delivers every time he shows up. Like, it's always so additive. Like, I give him, like, a one-sentence log line of, like, what I want his character to be, and then he comes back with, like, five or six notes of, like, how he doesn't have to change any dialogue, but, like, the physicality of him or the, you know the way he's going to present something, it really makes a character come to life. Yeah, it doesn't work for us. Option number two. There is a machine that could preserve her life and extract the virus. Well, that should have been option number one. Because it's impossible to get to. We'll decide what's impossible. Where is it? It's in the Etienne laboratory where the snowflake was developed. A secret dark tech complex fortified by an army in the most godforsaken part of the planet. But if you go there, all three of you will die. So basically what you're saying is she dies no matter what. Well, who needs a drink? I got just the place. Here we are heading into Shaw's Lair. Again, we're shooting on the east side of London. Practical location. Wow, look at all these. We get to see that Shaw's uh, does love cars a lot especially British cars. So coming up here is where we had the tango play out a little bit more with Hattie and Hobbs. And the tango started to play as she poured the drink, and it just reminded us of the tango, sort of the chess match they played in the CIA office. Drink. Yeah, I'll take a little one. I love that. I love just his look. <laughs> so we're setting up this uh, Isaac Gonzalez's character, her and her band of thieves that Shaw uses to get gear and get access to places and um, just basically is sort of a force multiplier for his missions around the world. We'd hope that Isaac could do more in the movie. It's just really, again, like a two-hour movie. You know, she's kick-ass, and we could 
she and her band of uh, criminal friends should have their own spinoff, in my opinion. Like, it would be really fun. Madame M and her crew, we would call it. I believe everything they tell you. Smile. You see here the beginnings of uh, another piece of narrative. It's like Hattie referring to the fact that Deckard is disgraced from the MI6 and that the rumor is that he killed his own team. And he reminds her that you can see how easily it is to frame somebody in this technological age. Don't you remember what you just saw out of Piccadilly? Just past the wandering eyes at the airport. It's just probably the only thing that's gonna fit. And there you have it. She's beginning to learn that maybe it's not all what she thinks it is. And um, they're beginning to make their journey back. What do we got, tough guy? Come on. So this next joke, again, I love these close-ups and, like, you know, making these really sort of, like, fun, wide-angle, close portraits of the characters when they're doing these fun things. There's a longer version of this in the extended scenes where we add text to the screen and we have real fun and you get to see sort of, um, it's a little bit more um, visuals to help you do it. And then we go on, the Mike Hawksmall joke goes on and on uncomfortably long in, in one version and it's actually really fun. Again, the momentum of the movie, you just, you get the laugh and you earn it, you take it, you celebrate it and you move on. But in the extended scenes, you sit here until it gets uncomfortable, and then you laugh again. And um, I was torn, but I actually really like how it plays in the studio's cut. Let's go. Hands on your head, pop small. There's a lot of comedy to come in this sort of section of the movie, and it was really important that we could keep the pace moving. Bad enough about this theme. I thought it's going to kill me and everyone else, but we used to So, this is also a really beautiful scene. These two have a great chemistry. He believes she'd be his sister. So the idea was is that he gave her the grenade pin as a gift a long time ago and she's always kept it. It's sort of her talisman reminding her of him even though they're estranged she never really got rid of him and that's sort of what i wanted to do with that as a metaphor hi i'm here i'm michael all right big audience moment <laughs> Dwayne is really good at comedy Hello. he's such a talented uh actor but he's a really seasoned comedian and you know when you look back his career he's done so much comedy that it's uh it's actually a pleasure to work with him and he knows his way around a joke and he definitely knows at all times what the audience is going to like here's a little moment of them flirting and um her realization that this guy is not all that she thought he was and she's beginning He's beginning to grow on her, if you can see her little reaction here. I love your babushka. Yeah, this little section on the plane is some of my favorite stuff. I mean, Jason is incredible in it as well, and it showcases their acting chops, their ability to be earnest and sincere and real in those moments, but then also their comedic chops, and we're flipping on a dime. It's not easy to do, and it's like 
it takes really sort of high-level actors to pull that off, and I'm pretty grateful of this incredible cast that I have. Like, even in the last 20 seconds, we just saw Idris Elba, you know, Eddie, Jason, Dwayne, Vanessa. That's um, pretty amazing. And you're about to see Kevin Hart kind of humbled what we put together. You'll be a good elephant, suck up another kilo of peanuts, put your chair back and relax. All right, listen, don't ever tell me to relax, all right? Don't tell me to do anything. This scene right here is a reason to make Hobbs and Shaw. It's, um, it's what it's all about. It's the frenemies, the banter, the classic banter. And you, look at you, man. Used to got like balls on a bulldog. There used to be a line in there, you know, sticking out in all the wrong places, waiting to get caught on a barbed wire fence or airport security. I kind of missed that line. <laughs> and then this whole idea of like um, impregnating your sister was something we came around to at the last minute. It was in the script for a long time and it got put away. And I think it was like the night before shooting it just seemed like the right thing to throw in. And I was having a discussion with Jason and I'm like, I feel like it's the right thing to throw in because it'll just now up the stakes of your, you know, you have something more to sort of bitch about to each other. You know, it was at some point the banter gets repetitive and you needed to sort of up the ante. And now the ante is not only, I don't like you, I don't like that you like my sister. And it's like, you need places to go or this stuff can get very, very, one note my entire life and if she chooses to look the way of this big brown well endowed <laughs> this is a lot of Dwayne coming up with his riffs he's really a genius at the insult game and i think it's years in the wwe and being the mega star that he was like you have to come up with this stuff on the fly but he would come up with it and he'd have alts written and he's really good at this game. He's really good at this game. And a lot of times supporting Shaw, coming up with great lines for him as well. He is good at the, the one-upmanship insult game. Air and opportunity. There goes the air. Bring it on, Don Ho. Don Ho. So now, hey, cut it out. So here's a great moment for the audience, the reveal of uh, Agent Dinkley and uh, Kevin Hart. Obviously, Dwayne and Kevin go way back. So Dwayne had, um, they were working on something together right before uh, Dwayne came to set. And he'd been talking to Kevin about being in the movie and Kevin really wanted to be in the movie. And it's like, how do we just dip our toe? We have so many stories to tell. It's kind of like the same with Ryan. It's like, I wanted to populate the world, but I couldn't make them fully developed characters yet. They're just a seasoning and a promise of what this world's gonna be. And, you know, again, like, grateful to have him come out and play. And Chris Morgan, you know, wrote these pages. Kevin riffed on them, and he's a great writer himself. And so having these great comedians come in and um, give you their insight and expertise is, is pretty fun. Kevin is so gracious and so talented. I would look forward to working with him anytime. Yeah, you want to know what I do? I sit in a can of farts all day long. That's what I'm dealing with. It's an occasional terrorist and a lot of recycled ass. I would give anything to be on the front line again. Again? What? I was a compartmental element for JSOC. You were Delta. <laughs> Same as <laughs> Coast, 24 7, baby. 
Echo, those guys were the warlocks because of the magic they could And there's a longer version of this on the uh, extended scenes, so you can um, feel free to enjoy that because it it was hard, you know. You're trying to build the pace of the movie, and you can see that this scene is probably almost two minutes long, and it's not a traditional length for a scene, a lot like the Pancake House. But I think when the audience is enjoying something, you just have to embrace it and let them enjoy it. And um, that's what we did. But there are plenty of jokes that of his on the cutting room floor, and you're like, you wish you could have it all, and you just learn that um, you got to pick the ones that work, and you got to keep the pace going, and you got to sort of be falling forward with the movie. This idea that he can get them anything and that he can, uh, he's an air marshal, so he has access to all aircrafts all around the world and trying to set him up for the future in the movie, but also the future of the franchise. Please, please let me go. <laughs> so this location was actually at a smaller airport, but it's, and it's also an event center, so the idea is we wanted to have an underground sort of expansive high-tech lab that was hiding in plain sight in the outskirts of an abandoned power plant in sort of Ukraine, in the spirit of like a Chernobyl or something like that, places where no one would ever go. So to get this sort of expansive look, we actually went to this convention center and took it over and then brought in all this dressing. So the building is real. That's not set extension. And the dressing is all sort of designed by our department and David Schooneman. And um, you can see we're going for the two color palettes in the spirit of like what we're doing the rest of the movie. Small change. Idris gives a great performance here. And it is sort of laying out the plot of the movie, like what is a man's life worth? One of the bigger existential questions. And in Idris's world and his cult, a man's life isn't worth much. It's really technology is going to save the day, and humans are just kind of expendable. Here we're in a Russian mansion. We wanted as quickly as we could show how Aza is a badass and her teamwork, and the fact that they could take over the house of one of the most prolific Russian gangsters and um, steal their gear and use their airstrip outside and she did it all within 24 hours. That's what we were trying to demonstrate here. And also the surprise moment of the kiss. Now, you see I cut to them and double cut back, so we tried to make the kiss as long as possible. <laughs> Always gets a big laugh. Oh, you don't see that coming. Dwayne had some alts on this. But um, maybe none of them safe for PG-13. <laughs> so this idea that Isa's character is named Madame M, or we call it Margarita, we'd hope that she can come back in the future and, like, she's a master criminal and she can get pretty much anything from anywhere at any time. And she's seated in the underworld and um, she knows her way around all the bad guys. That facility is three square miles of research labs. Yeah. And it's a powder keg packed with munitions. Here we're going to get to the plot point about the Mick Jagger and, again, how Hattie and Shaw had these griffs as kids. And, you know, they worked together so much. Let's, let's use one of our old plans. 
The Mick Jagger is basically your typical inside job. One person's got to get on the inside and the other guys, you know, make the music. So we set up the idea of the Mick Jagger, which pays off later with our heroes. So I can do it. We can do it. So now the only question is how to ring ETL's dinner bell. Oh, I can handle that part. <laughs> First, let's get you geared up. Here's a little gear porn coming up, as I like to call it. We get to see them uh, in classic sort of action movie style, getting all their spy gack. It's fun. Can you book me with optical sights? Ultra-thin, bullet-resistant Kevlar. Infrared cameras for seeing through walls. And last but not least... And compact hydrogen detonator. I have no idea if that exists. Actually, I do have an idea if that exists. It does not exist. But, uh... It exists in the Hobbs and Shaw world. <laughs> so this scene, again, like we're just following their story and their arc. And I wanted to sort of ground her as a badass and start to connect them with some real stakes. Let me tell you something else. The key to immortality is first living a life. And it's charming in a way that they keep going back to these quotes of uh, Bruce Lee or Nietzsche but that they're kind of earning a respect for each other. I think um, we shot this scene, honestly, in about 10 minutes at the end of a day. And it was so good, I did two takes of each and I, I moved on. They were on fire. How'd you find out? You've heard about me, I'm good at my job. What's your name? Here's the handover. Yeah. You can see that Madame M gets to play in all these shady circles. And she was able to reach Brixton and provide the handover. So this section of the movie was a lot longer, and what I did is I had to really sort of condense it in sort of the style of a heist. We kind of needed to get into the plot and get into the sort of underground power plant and start the action. So it became, again, sort of in the spirit of the intercutting that we were doing, Chris Rouse and I, we really sort of hopscotched through this part of the movie and I think for the betterment of the movie there's a longer scene of them in the plane where Dwayne is discussing the weight of the parachutes and it's like it doesn't you know he weighs more than what the parachutes can hold and it's it's really fun and you can see that in the extended scenes as well here's his payback for the three two one and his payback line for nobody tells me what to do the visual effects in this section are amazing. That's um, some great work from Dan Glass and the team. I mean, this hangar was massive. So I'm intrigued. Do you wash the blood off your hands before you count your money, or is it afterwards? Here we get to learn a little bit more about the agenda of Etion. And a little bit about the past with Shaw and Brixton. Like killing innocent people with viruses. Only the weak ones. We're dealing with the future of the planet, things that money cannot buy. Oh, like your soul back. My soul. Your brother took my soul. It's hard. I mean, I get, he's such a charismatic actor, I get speechless. <laughs> 
So I really do love Idris in this movie. And um, again, like it was the close collaboration with him that made the villain so interesting and complex. There's a little bit more to this scene, and I don't know if it's in the extended version, but um, it's a few lines dropped here and there. Idris used to say, you know, you guys should feel lucky you're saving the world our way, sort of reminding them that he believes this is right and that people should be merging with machines and we should be getting rid of the dead weight. Otherwise, humanity's not going to survive. There's too many people on the planet. Timer set for 45 minutes. We get in and get out. Blow this death fight for the pieces. Remember the whole way. So this is a classic sort of physical comedy gag that our stunt brothers came up with. Greg Rementer, who was the fight coordinator and uh, one of the stunt coordinators and also shot second unit, usually on the fight stuffs as well. The guys came up with this idea. One side full of guys. The other side has one guy. It actually came from the script stage. It's Drew Pearson, Chris Morgan with the conceit. But when you see the fight viz, which I hope would be on the Blu-ray, you'll see um, this is pretty close to the way the stunt guys designed it, uh, the team designed it. I do enjoy this sort of physical comedy with these guys. There's still stakes, but we can have fun. <laughs> and it's really like we're learning about them. <laughs> so. <laughs> Jason is um, exceptional at fight scenes. I've worked with him extensively over the years. We've done probably four movies, five movies together as either a stunt man or a fight choreographer or a second unit director. Like I've worked with him a lot. And he likes to train at 8711 in his downtime. And even movies that we don't do, he he prepares at 8711 with the guys and gets brushed up on fight scenes. I mean, it really is a skill that you gotta keep working on. It's like dance. You can lose your timing and you can lose your ability to mimic motion and He's always working on it, and um, he's one of the best in the business. So we are smashing their faces into the wall, but we had created these rubber pads on the door, and then visual effects helped us by obviously making them feel stiffer and putting the lighting in. And But yeah, that black pad was the art department had made it out of rubber, so we are hitting their heads, but they're hitting a soft object. <laughs> and then, of course, the sound department, who was amazing on this movie, they are adding a sound effect that makes it feel even more painful, so. Very good. Well done, boys. They were found out. They were caught. And they are going to be interrogated. So 
So there's another fight scene. There's a lot of fight scenes in the movie, and I think it's um, there's a lot of styles of shooting fight scenes. This is what I'd call sort of a jump cut version. It's a little more impressionistic. We're sort of skipping through what she's doing, and so there's a lot of cuts, as you can see. Sound is helping. And it sort of gives you that effect of like how proficient and quick she is, but it's really sort of like four or five cuts of like what just happened. What are you doing? Having to extract it myself. Here she's got the extraction machine and she's heading out the door. And um, she's gonna take the scientist with her. This is such a fun scene. And again, it's like the reason you make Hobbs and Shaw. It's like these two guys forced to work together. Here they're chained to chairs, forced to hang out together. I mean, they couldn't be more repulsed by each other. I must admit, old we get to learn a little bit about Idris's agenda. And we've gone through this monologue a ton of times and like, tried to pare it down and like, what's the essential things we need to know? We're, we're, we're carrying a lot of water. Like you got the backstory between, again, you got the backstory between Brixton and Shaw, but then you also have sort of Etienne's agenda. And, you know, they believe they're saving the world by getting rid of the weak and uh, merging the rest of the people with this new technology that makes them stronger. This scene is a, it's a little bit of a mix between Vanessa and the stunt double. Do you remember when we were real brothers? Vanessa was incredible in the action sequences. We ended up seeing the worst in people, worst in our countries, our leaders, our enemies, our, our friends. Again, Idris is so compelling as an actor. I mean, on screen and in person, his physicality is, you know, imposing and, um, he has a gravitas that is undeniable. I do like he's a little bit of a, a sadist here and uh, he kind of enjoys this. And you can see a little bit of a departure between Shaw's character who, slightly more noble, but at the end of the day, Brixton's a true believer and he, um, he wants to save the world. It's just a very flawed way. They're lunatics. Visionaries. Visionaries of a future, a bigger future, a brighter future. You remember the data they gave us, man? What with? And we shot the scene over two days. And it was really just more about making sure we got all the moments right. There's a lot of specific camera angles. And I did a lot of the, the dialogue in, in all these different spots. And it was a lot to put on the actors to keep getting back into the space because... Um, it's hard to break a scene up like that, but again, we had such an incredible group of professionals that uh, they indulged me, and it was really nice. That's three. I love this thing. I told you then. I'm telling you now. Your metrics are off. This idea that 
I don't know if the science is right, but the idea that they're hooked up to the car batteries and the engines are revving and like sort of like adding the car motif to the torture scene was just a sort of nod to sort of the car fetish world of the fast universe. That is Brixton's uh, talisman, the bullet. And so he's kept that, you know, his entire life since, uh, or at least the last eight years since Shaw has shot him. And I try to give everybody in the movie a talisman or a, a token that could be a visual emotional reminder to the audience. And so Hattie has the grenade pin that connects her to Shaw. Brixton has the bullet that connects him to Shaw. Hobbs has the picture that connects him to Jonah. But I think about that a lot. I think about it. Because what I've realized now that I did not realize then is that when you shot me, you gave me a gift. Look at me. I'm Black Superman. So the Black Superman line is, um, I guess we were doing uh, interviews on the red carpet for the premiere the other day, and um, it's a little bit of a point of contention who came up with it. Honestly, I can't remember. I think it could be Dwayne who came up with the idea. We should say Black Superman. It's brilliant. And I think it obviously worked really well in marketing materials. Tonally, in the movie, it happens in a really dark place. So it's funny when you see things in the trailers that are, they're fun. It's like, he's like, you know, he's saying it so cavalier, like, I'm Black Superman. And it's out of context and you laugh. But in this part of the movie, you don't laugh because he's like really giving his speech about what he believes in. And it's this sort of, you know, the more machine I become, the more humane I am. You know, look at me, they fixed me, they rebuilt me, I'm Black Superman, I can do anything. It's a very, very sincere and sort of stakesy moment. Doesn't allow you to laugh. See you later. Wait, 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 wait! I think we should join. Join? You said some really compelling things, and... I mean, that Black Superman thing, that really got me, I love that. What are you, deaf, stupid, or both? We enjoy There you go again. You're just thinking about yourself. You're such a diva. What about my feelings? For once, let me tell you something. If we now, here, you're allowed to laugh. I mean, this stuff. Here, we get the payoff of the Mick Jagger and, like, was part of the script that uh, Drew uh, Pierce and Chris Morgan came up with. And I just really love the idea of these British rock stars and, you know, naming their heists and their grifts after British rock stars was, I thought, such a clever idea. Smash him right in the face, stab him right in the neck for looking. So that is Greg Rementer, the guy with the gray beard. That's our stunt coordinator, fight choreographer. The other guy with the red beard, him, that's Kale Schultz. He also got killed in John Wick. He also got killed in Atomic Blonde. They're both stuntmen. You'll see them throughout my movies. See that guy over there? The big one. Here's some classic comedy. Face mash guy, dropkick guy. This is actually something um, that Chris Morgan came up with on set, and we started a riff on it. Sort of a riff on the Billy Jack idea, and that's where uh, Dwayne was riffing in on that. It's like, you know, I want to do this thing where I'm going to, you know, take my leg and put it upside your head, and there's nothing you can do about it. So we had that. I'm not smart, Sitch. Here's Eddie's payback with his line. There's this idea of um, the Etion chips and like 
we needed a way for the third act set piece to be without guns to stay within the bounds of PG-13, but also just, you know, I've done a lot of gun movies in my day, and I really wanted to lean into sort of martial arts at the end, and I wanted to do the Samoan weapons battle, and I really wanted to creatively have sort of a 13 assassins kind of moment in the island where the brothers sort of fight with this sort of makeshift idea. So we had to set up the guns that they switched on and off, and you need an activation chip for the gun, and that allowed us to shut the guns down. And it was, I thought it was a really good creative solution and fun, and then allows for the fun set piece later on. Here's some of Simon Crane's work dovetailed into some of my work. But again, it was great having Simon for, you know, our time in London to, you know, pick up a couple days here and there and like and get some really compelling action, um, you know, when we needed it. Never fires. So now it's funny, we're gonna drive out of this compound and um, you'll see that that car basically we got to cut out right now because th there's nowhere to go. Like that car has to slam on the brakes. And then we cut to Doncaster, you know, sort of Northern uh, UK. And now we're outside at the real sort of abandoned power plant that we're doubling for uh, Ukraine. Yeah, this black Superman joke and a runner, the more I think about it, the more I think it was Dwayne's call. He really is Black Superman. So the idea of the charge was sort of a, it wasn't in the script. And um, I have, you know, through years of being a director and a, and a second unit director, I always try to cover my butt with sort of like, okay, what if we need a way out of this scenario or this or that? And so I had them put the charge on in that scene and I'm like, if all else fails, we can have an explosion that sort of leads us out of the chairs and like, how are they gonna get out of the chairs? And long story short, it became sort of a, it was a backup thing that I had in my pocket. So in editorial, we actually made it have more relevance to the plot. Here you get to see some great combination of visual effects and practical stunts. Man, this sequence, I don't even know how many visual effect shots there are, but again, the more you can shoot in camera, the more the effects are gonna look great. And that's where Dan Glass and I work together really well. Um, you challenge then the artists to make everything else look practical. So in most of these shots, there's some practical element like the building there is real the that they're you know the foreground of all of them is real there's so much real in these shots but then there's also like a lot of um, digital work that helps us again such a great team of effects artists thing 
you'd think that this was all great compositing, but this is all real backgrounds, and that's real backgrounds, and we're actually driving around these cooling towers, and it, it's pretty amazing. You think of what I'm thinking, Charles? Let's trade some paint. Trade some paint. Funny, we had such a short window on post that so many of these effect shots were coming in last minute. I would say, um, you know, the movie. Honestly, I'm gi I'm giving this commentary, and the movie hasn't even come out yet. So we're um, we're recording it so we can get this um, into the process with the making of the Blu-ray and the digital assets. So it'll be interesting how everyone the world responds to the movie. But um, there's so much beautiful integration between practical and digital effects in this this sequence and I think that's what makes it so compelling um, I am in awe that how you know how they did it in such a short post I mean 22 week post and some of these shots that would normally be 20 week shots were done in 10 weeks some of them that were 15 weeks were done in 8 weeks like there's a lot of great artists and a lot of people, sleepless nights. Here's our transforming motorcycle. And some little bit of um, splinter unit from Simon Crane and putting some stuff together for us. I know what you're thinking. Just keep driving, I'll make it. So there's coming up is there's a fight scene on the back of the um, back of the truck, um, and we really needed these moments to uh, demonstrate that Brixton was powerful and he could like handle these guys in sort of so a protracted fight really didn't work. We had a long protracted sort of kung fu style fight where our heroes never get a shot off. And it just really didn't tell the story as well as like, you know, they walk up and he sits them down. And it's just more, um, this fight was reduced really just for storytelling. It's like, look it, he's strong. I will crush you no matter what you do. You know, you can't hit me and I will knock you down. So it became very um, simplified and more, more on story. Like, And, you know, really it's sort of the luck of the bomb that ultimately saves them. Great picture car coordinator, Alex King in, um, in London. He, uh, we came up with a way to put casters on the back of that so we could actually drive it with just the, the, the front drivetrain and like Pretty amazing. This is actually in the UK too, and we found this like great location just outside of London, some um, old abandoned military barracks where we could shoot for the sort of uh, dilapidated um, Ukrainian city a la Chernobyl. Or, and so all of this is in camera and it's gorgeous. I love this scene. Um, we sort of lean into the drama here, um, and uh, 
I think Jason, this is one of his best performances in the movie, and, and Vanessa, and you really feel for them here. Um, Jonathan Sella, who had just before this worked with Michael Bay on The Last Transformers, we sort of shot this in golden hour, and we did, you know, kind of what he described as, like, um, what he would do on a Michael Bay movie. Like, golden hour becomes, like, the time. So we had the crane all ready to go. We had steady cam, We had dolly track laid. And um, as soon as golden hour hit, like, we were shooting with this great, beautiful, natural light. Um, and uh, that's how you get this sort of warm, beautiful contrasty backlight that uh you know you're not faking it it's real it's in camera and um you shoot in that window of time the problem is it's to match it it's hard so you got to make sure you get the scene done and that's how you get that great sort of beautiful shots like that there's Hobbs's talisman I'm gonna take us home what it's the last place on earth I ever want to go so this needle drop that's coming up We'd looked and looked and looked, and we had some sort of classic sort of, um, you know, Pacific Islander-style music here. Um, this is actually a Samoan group, and I was always on the fence on it. Creatively, Kelly was, like, really advocating for it, and, and ultimately, like, it grew on me, and... Um, it's a good departure from what we just come from in like this crazy massive set piece. And then we can actually have a palate cleanser and get into some comedy. Here we get to see Kevin Hart again. He came in for an additional day of photography and um, helped us condense the movie and get them to Chernobyl quickly. And so we reprised his role as the air marshal and he secures them the plane that um, gets them to Samoa and the promise of him being in the franchise in the future. Fingers crossed, knock on wood. There's also a great scene in the extended scenes where the heroes um, duel over the radio, and it is actually one of my favorite bits in the movie, but if you have Kevin Hart come in, you don't really want to not put that in the movie because it's gold. <laughs> but um, there's a great moment of them dueling over the radio that uh, I love. And um, you can see that in the extended scenes. As if it doesn't kill me first. Here we arrive at Hobbs' family home. This was built by the production designer, David Schooneman. Um, we found this beautiful location in Kauai to double for um, Samoa. This is all in camera. There's no compositing here. We built this on a cliff. I look at it and it's like, it was so gorgeous there. Incredible place to, uh, to spend uh, a couple weeks of photography. But we built this sort of as a riff on the um, traditional sort of Samoan architecture. Cliff Curtis, incredible actor who, um, graciously came on board to, you know, give us our authenticity to Dwayne's brother. And, you know, there are many ideas, like, the original idea is, like, we got to find someone who's bigger than Dwayne so Dwayne can be the little guy. And to be honest, I've never lost on betting on a real actor and, like, a great actor. So instead of, like, going for size and the gimmick of big, I went for big in personality and big in acting chops. And... um 
when Cliff agreed to take the job, he says, look, I'll, I'll go toe-to-toe with DJ and I will, I will bring it out of him. And he did. And he's a seasoned actor and he's a great actor and he was a really good um, collaborator with DJ and we got sort of great performances out of both these actors. It's pretty amazing. Miss my baby boy. But look at you. Oh, skin and bones. Come over here and eat. No, 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 Mama. Just, there's no time. Look, I'm sorry. I didn't want to bring trouble here. So this is, um, you know, Hobbs' mom. She is actually sort of now, she steals the show. She's sort of the loving, uh, quintessential Samoan mom with the slipper of doom. Everybody around the world. Joan, I need you to Again, we're shooting this all in the house we built and on the cliff edge. So it's all real, real ocean out there and it's real authentic. I was really grateful for Universal to let us go to Kauai and, um, and shoot there. It's really special. You're going to see soon the reason we went. There is a old um, sugar mill that is abandoned. It's actually sort of a tourist site because it's so beautiful and it's sort of rusted, broken down nature and it's really graphic and it's it's big and it's nestled up against this beautiful sort of mountainside. And uh, it really spoke to me as like where these people could be from and we built the chop shop on the inside of that and it, it became a bigger sort of piece of production design than you could ever build. And, um, and it's all in camera and for real. I'm gonna saucer your big fat heads. You boys hear me? Here she's hitting home the emotional sort of arc for Hobbs and like, family will always come through. You're Samoan, you know, whatever you need, we're gonna give it to you. We're back and so we wanted to lay the stakes out and set the table for the third act and this operation scene used to be in the beginning of the movie. And so we revealed that he had all this metal in his body, you know, not unlike a Wolverine or Terminator type, you know, he has this sort of augmentation going on. But um, we decided to save the reveal for the third act and sort of up the stakes and um, hit home that this time Brixton wasn't going to have anything restricting him. Steve Dunleavy, one of my stunt friends and actors. <laughs> Those are all stunt guys. It's a great matte painting by Visual Effects. And there's the sugar mill that's all real. And it just spoke to me and I said, we gotta come here, we gotta shoot this. It will be a great backdrop for the ancient weapons battle and we won't be comping anything. It just exists. Quite we were lucky to get it, and we were lucky that Universal um, let us do it. And this is all the inside of that place. My dad you know, making it happen, seeing the dapple light come through, it's just sort of beautiful and scopey, and um, you just couldn't build it. My old man started coming around again, taking a real interest in his sons. The truth is, he was just looking for a new crew. I was the only one to see through those lies. There's a longer version of this scene somewhere, and um, but I think we really sort of trimmed it down to the brass tacks. It's like he's estranged from his family, and um, he made some choices, but he doesn't regret them. 
but I think we'll find out later that the only regrets he really has is that he didn't he didn't reach out sooner. And uh, again, like maybe that's that's good for all of us. And the, sort of one of the big uh, themes of the movie, outside of like blowing shit up and driving fast cars and kicking ass, it's like it shouldn't take global stakes to um, reconnect with the people that we care about. Lucky me. So this is something I wanted to do. And it's actually Sorian and Will, two of my great storyboard artists on this movie, we were trying to solve the problem of like what the family does. Is it a chop shop? Is it not a chop shop? And I think it was a riff on them. It's like, what if it's custom cars and they've actually gone clean? And it was something that Dwayne wanted too. It's like, I don't necessarily want the family to be criminals. And so we were working through some of these things in real time as we were filming as like the, the script was evolving and we were discovering things and we decided on Hobbs Customs pretty late in the game. But I got so excited at the idea of Hobbs Customs as the promise of the future. I mean, we get to have these beautiful custom vehicles built by Dennis McCarthy and his team who builds all the cars for the Fast movies and... Um, the promise of seeing that type of sort of car aficionado stuff in the franchise moving forward is exciting, I think, for everybody. These guns, they kill all my family. So we're gonna fight. Here's a heartfelt message about the guns. And look, there are a couple things going on here. One is like, I didn't really want another shoot 'em up set piece. We got a PG-13 movie. I really wanted to have a great sort of fight scene in the spirit of Braveheart that connected these brothers. It was emotional and blood and sweat and mud. But also it was like mom gave a little bit of sort of a, a message to moms about guns. And, you know, we've had enough. You ready? Always wanted to. Let's go old school. Take a look around. This is where we draw the line. Who would have thought this? So I actually came up with this idea where these guys could work together to form a battle plan. And again, like I said, it was in the spirit of like, you know, one of many of my favorite movies, but one of the movies that influenced me for this was 13 Assassins, where it's sort of classic storytelling or Western where the town bands together to defend themselves from the army that's coming. And so... The heroes develop this idea of the kill box. They create a trap. There's um, a lot longer versions of this where they really talk about how the sugar cane is turned into ethanol and that, you know, Shaw knows how to use it. And, like, I mean, there's really sort of a lot of exposition that we had that was really fun. We sort of condensed it into more of a stylized montage of, like, um, you get it, like... Jonah's a craftsman who builds custom cars. He's going to fix the machine. Hobbs and Shaw are warriors. They're going to go out there and build the traps. The island's going to provide the natural resources that they need to fight technology. And it is sort of like analog versus digital, man versus machine, you know, humans versus technology, human will versus uh, computers. Like, all that is what we're trying to set the stage for. And um, we're doing it with this great song that... Again, the music department came through with. It was on a, a list of tracks that were sort of kind of related to this idea of family that I had asked for. And um, 
This one really resonated with me, and it was one of the first songs I picked for the movie. And we started to cut different versions of montages to this. But. It's some good, you know, sexy shots of Dwayne and Jason and um, the brothers and Roman. Gets a couple great moments here. We get to see the brothers working in action and um, I really love this scene. I'm kind of uh, in my element when I just get to shoot beautiful stuff. We had a um, good friend of mine, Alex Gaynor, who's a first AD and now a second unit director and, and, and a director as well. And he came out to Hawaii for a couple days and he helped us shoot some of the, the work that was going on in there as well. If you look closely, the background posters, there's some Easter eggs in that scene where um, you can actually see a shot of Dwayne and his dad when they were kids. Some beautiful helicopter photography by Fred North, who's a prolific helicopter pilot in the business. And um, he worked around the, around the clock for us while we were in Hawaii. I love this scene. There's longer versions of it. In a different version, we explain the grenade pin and how Shaw gave it to her. But um, I really just wanted to get to the emotional part and get into the, the business of the movie. She's amazing in this. And again, we shot this golden hour. You schedule it at the end of the day and you're waiting for that sun to get low in the sky and you get this sort of vibe that you can't get any other way. Running away. Me too. Yeah. yeah. I've been back here in 25 years. I mean, so they have a real chemistry in the movie and I think it's... Um, they earned a respect for each other in real life as well. And I think there's this moment, it's pretty funny, like we had talked about the kiss. Should we not have the kiss? Should we have the kiss? Should we not have the kiss? You know, we kind of shot the film in order, not intentionally, but that's sort of how the schedule played out. So we knew all the steps leading up to this moment. And I remember before the scene started, we were like, we'd all agreed that we weren't going to do the kiss. And it's like, it's not romantic enough. We should leave the promise of this for the future. And... Um, then everyone's like, yeah, yeah, no kiss, doesn't, we didn't earn it, we didn't earn it, we didn't earn it. And then in take two, Vanessa just like dives in and kisses him. Like, and Dwayne reacts and kisses back in the moment acting. And um, it became this genuine moment of shock and it didn't feel romantic, it felt sweet. And it felt like, you know, two people that were facing death and like more of respect and friendship and like, just sort of this caring human moment that it felt real. You know, I kept it in the movie. It was like such a, a genuine, authentic moment. And I think uh, audiences are going to love it. Come on. Daughter, now. Okay, fine, fine. Okay. Here goes nothing. Brace yourself, Ed. It ain't going to be pleasant. No, it's going to be fine. So here we get to see inside the machine. I was trying to sort of play with the idea that we go inside the cars and we get to see how the engines work and like maybe we should do some of that interesting detailed storytelling inside, you know, so people understand that the virus has been encased in capsules 
and that she's not sick yet. And so that's where we decided to go inside and sort of do that visual effects type work. As we planned? As we planned. Russo's! It's time. Jonah. So here's the scene between uh, Cliff Curtis and Dwayne. This is uh, my favorite Dwayne scene in the movie. And I remember when this was the last day of shooting, the last scene we shot. This is it. We are done with the movie right here. And I remember texting him afterwards, and I just said, that scene's going to be epic, and it is the movie in a nutshell. It's about not living with regrets and not waiting for the world to end before you ask, you know, before you call your brother, <laughs> you know? And it's like, there's a longer version of this scene in the extended scenes, and you get to see Cliff's response of, like, he is not going to wait 25 years if they make it through that, you know, and um, they both feel the pain and uh, regret of not having the courage to just pick up the phone. And it's really emotional and I, I love it. Okay. Be mobile. Again, with this scene, it's the same. It's now the final sort of uh, reconnection with Hattie. And it's a confessional for Shaw where we subtly lay out there that there are things he's done in the past that he needs to make amends for. And I think for the super fans in the fast world, we know what we're alluding to, and um, we all want him to make amends for those things, and that's coming. But for uh, Vanessa and her character, she has to, it's a confessional of like, I never, I should have believed you. And um, oh, it's just, it's a beautiful scene and beautifully performed. Things I have to make amends for. All the things the one that last put me through. But right now, the most important thing to me is to get my little sister home safely. She's good at tearing up on a cue. Here we see the Etian army breaking in. So you've seen that wide shot. The sky is on like a deeper shade of blue. In post, we actually rotoed the sky and started to give it a blue hue on the sort of the reverses of Brixton and the army coming in. If you remember what Shaw was saying, it's like they always attack right before dawn. We're trying to make this feel like dawn is breaking. It's still night, but dawn is imminent. And you can see a little bit of the light in the sky. I mean, I love this material. I remember telling Jonathan Sella, it's like I want it to be like a rock concert. Like, let's turn all the car lights on and um, backlit DJ as he walks out. Like, he had been training for this scene and dieting and, like, getting into the perfect shape for this moment and uh, had been working on the speech. And I really just wanted to make it, like, a special, visually stunning, emotional moment. And again, there's a longer version of this where they do the whole Sivatau and these guys are on fire and it's pretty intense. Hey. 
Yeah, this is another such a great scene in the movie. Great effects team we had there. Schwami effects. We were blowing up cars. We were shooting petrol out of the back of a car. We're lighting a trench on fire like anything we wanted to do. Practical, we were able to do like that's practical. There's some visual effects enhancement in the fire, but we actually lit that whole trench on fire. Here you can see the blue in the sky coming up. More blue. The kill box has been formed. And now we see the sunrise, which allows a transition into dawn. I think Dwayne was really excited to do this fight. He said he's been waiting to do a fight like this his entire career. <laughs> I would love to do another Braveheart-style fight with Dwayne. I, and there's a lot more of this uh, fight in the extended scene, so you can have fun enjoying watching the brothers beat the crap out of the Etion bad guys. Pulling out some of his old wrestling moves. Again, like, fight days for me are my favorite days. It's kind of like second nature to me, so it's really good. I just, I dig in and focus and uh, you let the juices flow and you can be really creative. And, you know, I adjust choreography with my guys. Like here I have probably 20 stuntmen who are fight experts that all they do are fight scenes. And some of them are my contemporaries that I've worked with for years and other them are guys that we brought up under 8711. And, but they're all friends and or colleagues and it's, uh, it's so easy to work with them and it's so fun. And we're just having like the best time. You notice this is sort of a parallel of them diving from the safe explosion in the first act. Here we see them diving from this explosion and they're separated. I wanted to create this sort of a surreal moment for her as she's sort of just the explosion has sort of rung her bell and she's trying to figure out what to do. You get a great moment with Roman and, and uh, Dwayne for WWE fans. All real helicopter work. The Blackhawk pilots were insane. And Fred North is doing, you know, helicopter to helicopter air to air shots throughout this whole sequence that are just unbelievable. I think that spit was improv. Uh, I have to think that Idris did not know it was coming. And it was pretty, uh, I mean, you gotta be pretty uh, courageous to spit in Idris's face. <laughs> so. Here we dig into the chase and um, we get to see some of these great vehicles. Man, we had so much fun shooting in Hawaii. And this is all, again, like at that sugar mill, all in that location. So you can see how much production value we got out of that place. It was a farm that had a massive footprint 
and we got to use all of that land to do this car chase. This whole car chase takes place on the property of that sugar mill. So again, this is a lot like the storyboards, that moment of them wrapping the helicopter, and this was gonna be it. This was going to be it, sort of wrap the helicopter and then go straight over the cliff. It wasn't until the last minute when we realized we sort of um, wanted to take this car piece to the next level and that we needed to do something in the spirit of these big, fast movies where how do we defy physics and, like, get this sort of visually crazy, you know, idea, iconic idea, what is it? And Chris Morgan in his classic Chris Morgan fashion came up with the idea of connecting the cars and one by one. And we were pre-visiting it at the last minute, even while we were in Hawaii and storyboarding it and trying to figure it out. And meanwhile, we're shooting all the lead-ups with the stunt team. So all this stuff leading up to it, I had shot listed for them. We had the ultimate arm. And so they basically had one camera and they would go off every day in two or three hours when the light was right, and they'd shoot a lot of these transition shots. They had the helicopter and the ultimate arm. Chris O'Hara, who's a um, great stunt coordinator, got to direct a lot of second unit here. And he, you know, these car-to-car -car shots were great. Him and the ultimate arm drivers and Fred North gave us a lot of that material. The axle, the axle! Again, a piece this size with this crazy ideas, there's a lot of stuff going on. Practical shot fully in camera, practical shot fully in camera, insert shot material, fully in camera, CG truck in the background, fully in camera, fully in camera, digital shot. Like you're just, you're watching this thing come together with all these different pieces, you know? Real shot, CG shot with plate, Blue screen shot, real shot, <laughs> real shot. Um, we're doing a lot of camera mounts, fixed mounts to give the energy, real shot, but CG enhancement on the cliff. Like I could go on and on, but you see like the puzzle pieces to put a, pe a, a sequence like this together are, um, it's kind of mind blowing. And all departments are working on all cylinders to make it happen. So after our first test screening, we hadn't had the storm sort of laid into the background yet. And we wanted to make sure that there was a bump that some people were bumping on the weather transition later on in the, um, in the sequence where they go over the cliff. And so we wanted to make sure that in these big shots, we were getting weather in the background. So we started to add the clouds digitally and the lightning. And so you kind of see it coming, you know, where they're heading into the storm. So you can see the brothers working together. Practical. We're coming up to no man's land, which we call it. Goodbye. In no man's land, you know, the idea is that the brothers have planted all these barrels in the ground and they're filled with, uh, you know, the ethanol and they're, they're, you know, you run over them and they explode. 
So special effects had actually black powder in these barrels and we were shooting these barrels up in the air, not with the real helicopter, we would do plates, but we had the real helicopter doing it with just like air mortars of smoke. Let's get this up. So that's real, like that is real. All interaction with the smoke is real. That's a real helicopter. That's a real cars flipping. Like I have the Rockstar stunt team of the last 40 years there and we are blowing shit up, flipping cars and um, doing this stuff for real. And it was pretty awesome, I have to say. And last but not least, we have to get to the super strength moment that has become sort of a landmark for the Fast movies, and we just wanted to make it um, fun, but not linger on it too long. You know, Hobbs gets his moment to just stop the, the crippled helicopter from getting away before they can hook it back on the winch. I really love how this scene turned out, and it's really sort of, again, a testament to all the people involved, Jonathan Sella shooting it, David Schooneman finding the location and production designing it, Dan Glass getting the 800 visual effect shots that are augmenting every single frame, Chris Rouse, the editor for finding the, finding the pace of this all, the artists that were able to create you know, some of these digital effects, and then we're into our finale fight. So working with my creative producer, Kelly McCormick, again, who is also my wife, we, um, I was pitching her this idea that, you know, I like to end my movies in the rain. I like to, you know, make the stakes personal for the characters. I like to have the, cin the cinematic nature of it in a classic sort of Western style. And so, um, but how was I going to make it different? And she's always challenging me to, you know, fights can get so repetitive and she's like always challenging me to make it different you know we'd done some super slow-mo in deadpool 2 where we were traveling through time you've seen stuff in the matrix movies where we've done slow-mo as choreographers but i hadn't seen it in a while and so i spoke to dan glass visual effects and like i wanted to play with the water and the speed of the water and see the water like shoot off of these guys and um you're gonna see later that that moment becomes the moment of when they really work together. And that stylized moment, I think, works within the, the fast world because it is sort of punctuating the one time in the moment where Hobbs and Shaw come together. I was beginning to like you two, you know that? Oh well. They're answering the ultimate question of the movie. Can these two polar opposite personalities get along and save the world. If these two people who are so diametrically opposed can get along and save the world, don't you think there's kind of hope for all of us? And um, again, I don't want to get too philosophical in sort of this fast world, but I find as a filmmaker, you kind of need to hang your hat on bigger themes in your storytelling. And it's easy for me as an action director to just get caught up in the fun spectacle of like 
you know, his heads-up display or, like, the kung fu sort of, like, nature of the scene or the stylized shots that we're about to see. But um, without a grounded story, without bigger themes, without character arcs, none of it means anything. Here's what I'm talking about. And it's sort of punctuating this moment of like, we need to work together. We need to put aside our differences, cut the bullshit, no more joking around. I got your back and I got yours. Take a punch to land a punch. Let's do this, brother. And it turned out really emotional. So there's a lot of um, methodology going on here. We're shooting in slow-mo, they're acting in slow-mo, the water is CG, the other rain is real, the faces are being manipulated and twisted in CG. So it's again, like a lot of departments working, you know, together to make things happen. You get to see like Hattie is so self-sufficient and she's such a badass and she takes care of herself. We really wanted to make sure that we didn't ever make her the damsel in distress. I mean, she can be compromised and she can get help from the boys and they can get help from her and she's just one of the team. And it was never like she was incapable, it's just that they were all sort of overwhelmed with the technology of Etion and the strength of Brixton. Idris, by the way, was such a good sport. I think it's hard, like, you want to come in, you're playing the villain, you know at some point the reckoning's coming and you're going to have to take the ass-whooping so the heroes can win. And he does it graciously, enthusiastically. He shows up like, we're working hard, we're doing the fight scenes, and he's additive, he's got great ideas, and, um, you know, he's allowing the heroes to win. And... It's sometimes, you know, you work in these movies and especially people that do action movies all the time, there's a lot of egos and people think they're the actual characters and, and there's all this like BS going on. It was never that way with these guys. It was all about the story. And um, we need the heroes to win. We need the bad guy to lose. But we also needed this moment of that Idris really fought for was sort of the complexity of like his character. And like, he's a true believer in this cause that technology, you know, could save the world, but at what cost, you know? And their cost is dark and, and flawed. And that their brotherhood, I guess, with Shaw and him, that Shaw could actually show mercy and a real hero has the ability to do that and that only humans have the ability to show this type of compassion and mercy and computers can be cold and calculated and um, but humans can be even more elevated and evolved and that's sort of the big theme at the end here that we're dealing you know we're we're trying to tackle in a fun big popcorn kind of way but Shaw shows mercy and we see that humanity rises to protect itself and storm the household and make sure that if Etienne was going to stay, they were going to have to deal with 
a thousand Samoans. You may have all the technology in the world. We have heart. This is something that Dwayne really fought for in terms of the ending. And like, it's funny. What's crazy is that three weeks before shooting, I swapped the set pieces. We were going to go to Samoa first and meet the Hobbs family and then end in what we call, used to call Chernobyl. And after scouting, because the, the movie was so compressed time-wise, I had been to Samoa and I had, it was so spiritual and emotional and like I had this vision for the end of the movie and sort of that spirit of like the people rising up to take on the machines and it lended itself to it. So I called the studio and I called Dwayne and I said, hey, I really want to swap these two set pieces and I know it's crazy because we start shooting in three weeks, but thankfully everybody got it and I think that the movie is better for it. I can't imagine ending the movie in the Ukraine driving out of the, the smoke, I mean... We're ending the movie in this beautiful place. We've had this big commentary about man versus machine and like humans can do the right thing. Brixton's always posed them with the question of like, can we do the right thing? Can people do the right thing? And Hobbs and Shaw answer that. It's gonna be a hell of a reunion. You're on our way, aren't it? So this um, computer voice was always gonna be left up to a mystery. There were times where we had a cameo circling it, and we were going to reveal that cameo at a certain point. But then at some point, we just felt like we sort of populated the world enough, and like it was kind of interesting that it's just sort of this computer that's running things. And is it AI? You know, where do we want to take it? We have a lot of ideas, and I'm going to leave those out now. But, um, you know, I think it could be interesting that, you know, our heroes go up against this machine over and over and over. And it is sort of like in classic Bond style, we have an arch-villain uh, and an organization that they can rail against for future episodes. Kelly McCormick. Here we get to see the families reconnecting, and it's fun. Again, like I, this motif allowed me to condense the storytelling. This was originally going to be, <clears throat> we told these things individually, and we saw it. We went to the island, and we went to the prison, and um, but having the split screen motif in the beginning and sort of setting up this visual sort of intercutting style allowed us to accelerate the storytelling and um, it was always my idea to reprise the song and I think it sort of pulls the thread together emotionally like again that virus represented the time in the bottle but um, we thought it was really about the world ending virus but really what, what it was about was bringing Deckard and Hattie together and uh, Hobbs and Jonah. How long have you been working here? Sam, this is your grandma. I think it works really well. Pretty proud. And again, it's so beautiful. Samoa. I mean, in Hawaii. <laughs> Sorry. 
Now you're going to see something coming up at the end here, which is um, the coda. And after our first test, we had to explain the virus. You know, we had a couple different versions of how we got rid of the virus. We burned it at one point because, you know, that's said you could do. Um, audiences really didn't like that idea. There was a lot of questions about did it vaporize, did it what? And then I think um, <clears throat> we had a version where we never explained it. We just took it away. People were like, what happened to the virus? So I again called Ryan and he graciously said, I'll come help you. And I go, I need you to give me some more exposition, but we got to do it in a fun, humorous way. So him and Chris Morgan and myself went back and forth on pages, mostly Ryan, to be honest. <laughs> and um, we came up with this gag where he explains the virus, he's got it. The CIA has put it in a lockdown facility. But we also had this fun idea that he's also in trouble and that it's sort of the promise of um, Hobbs and Shaw coming to get him in the future or helping him in the future or teaming up with him in the future. So this is something we shot three weeks before the film's release at Universal. Listen, before you say another word, tell me you took care of the snowflake. I got That's it. actually a couple set walls. <laughs> we're not family. I know, what we have is so much deeper. Listen, hey, real talk. And that hallway was a hallway in one of the um, painting rooms. And this exterior shot is actually in the Back to the Future back lot. And I just sort of shot it on long lenses so everything kind of goes away. And so it's funny, movie magic. Jesus, hang on a second. Here we have Simon Crane, who did uh, an incredible catch-all job for us while we were in London. We have um, a great uh, production crew, a great editorial um, crew. Um, I can't... M Mark uh, Fitzgerald's amazing, our accounting, uh, amazing Nicole. Just so many great people working on this. Here's our cast. see a lot of stunt performers. Yeah, I said at the premiere that, you know, my brother, Chad Stahelski, who just directed John Wick 3, um, we've been pounding the pavement in this business for 20 years, and now, you know, through all our hard work, we're directing big Hollywood movies. Um, it would just be great if the Academy would at some point acknowledge the stunt performers and what they mean to movies like this. It's been 20 years. I, I have a lot of contemporaries in this business who have multiple Academy Awards, and I'm, I'm not saying I would ever have earned one, but it'd be nice to just have the celebration on that night when all the rest of the film industry gets to celebrate on that night. Here you have uh, the second coda which um, in a different incarnation actually played where that other scene did. And this is, um, again, everything in the movie comedy-wise is a plant payoff in sort of traditional comedy fashion. And we um, had come up with this idea that we needed a payoff for the um, Mike Cox Mall moment. And so here you get the Hugh Janus moment. And there was one point where I actually pitched Ryan if he wanted to be the guy outside on the uh, megaphone. 
<laughs> saying like he had the CIA show up and arrest Shaw. But it's fun. I mean, it's, again, so beautiful and graphic, and we actually shot this in a very famous bar in the east side of London. And those details, you can't deny the authenticity of it all. Looking forward to it, Shaw. <laughs> There's Alex King. You know, we had two picture car coordinators in this movie, uh, Dennis McCarthy and Alex King. Alex King did the UK piece. So um, you look at that rock crawler with the trophy truck suspension. That's he he built that um, based on the designs from David Schooneman. Um, so honestly, great crews all over the world uh, that we worked with. There's a lot of great music um, we wanted to cram into the back of the movie. Um, one of them is the Songland, um, the stuff from Songland. And so this is, uh, we had the Aloe Black song that we picked from the Songland episode. amazing when you really you know dig down into it like how many people work on a movie and um, you know I'm constantly telling my family and friends they're like like you're still working on that movie isn't it done yet and it's like I get it like if you're not in the business you kind of like you know you think it's easy but this scroll goes on for nine minutes and Every one of these people works, you know, five to seven day weeks, you know, 12 hour, 12 to 15 hour days. Like it's not, it's no joke. And it's, uh, it's pretty crazy the logistics it takes to make this type of big entertainment and um, pretty grateful. There's uh, my assistant, Dan Crowley. He actually had the nickname Danny the Nanny because he took care of our dogs. We have three dogs. We have two rescue pit bulls and one rescue lochin. And uh, so Kelly and I had this nickname for him called Danny the Nanny. We were looking for a, um, a code name for the movie, as you often do in these big movies. You have a code name as to try to keep sort of onlookers away and like you're sending out emails you don't want it to say Hobbs and Shaw on it all the time because it's very just people will then be attracted to it so we named the production um, Danny the Nanny and uh, sounds like a television show if you ask me celebrity dog nanny crazy There's our second unit. Two second unit directors there, Chris O'Hara. We go way back 20 years. Um, Chris O'Hara and I, as I said earlier, it was Chris, I was mentioning Chris Palermo, who's another great stunt friend of mine. But Chris O'Hara was um, actually who I was referring to when I said we, we actually lived uh, together when we first got into the business. Uh, and. Um, he had worked a bunch of jobs. He was able to some cobble together to buy a house and I rented from him. But even before that, like, there were a lot of our stunt friends that, you know, I slept on couches. 
there were four of us that rented a house that was like a two bedroom and like we were all just like scratching and surviving um you know trying to get into the stunt world we actually rented a place where and chat this is great so it was actually chad ended up buying the house and this is a long i think out of nostalgia factor but um the long and short is like we rented this place for four years and we without telling the owner of the house we dug a hole so we could make a trampoline in the back because we're all training in trampoline for stunts and so we had an in-ground trampoline in the back without telling our landlord and um all the stunt guys would come over over the years and we'd have trampoline parties and we'd have trampoline training sessions and it was like crazy sort of trampoline training house and uh it was after one big movie that you know that house went on the market and we decided to you know chad's like i gotta buy it and i'm like why do you want to buy this house like it's not even that great and he's like i don't want to move the trampoline seriously so that was his first house probably more than you need to know about chad stahelski small little house in uh, North Redondo. And so then we could continue to train there. Good times in the story of the stuntman. Here, the massive amount of visual effects artists on this, and um, I'm incredibly grateful for the short amount of time that they had. I think that the house is... Uh, Michael at Double Negative in Vancouver um, really delivered on so many sequences that it, you know, it means a lot to me to work with great people and great leaders. The Method guys did incredible for the stuff that we needed to do for titles, and then we had Framestore do the great work in Samoa at the end. And so some great houses, great work. We had a good friend, Sean Cushing, come on at the last minute who did some um, graphics for us and did the director's sort of uh, waveforms, and that was amazing. Yeah, just really, really good people. And um, when you have this many visual effects shots, you can't imagine even understanding the movie without it. It's incomprehensible at times, you know, visually. So Alex Cannon is our previs supervisor, and Alex, he's an incredibly creative individual, and he, a lot like my storyboard artists, Will Groby and Soren and Todd Harris, Alex, you know, was pitching a lot to me ideas, and Alex pitched this idea of, like, the, the way the bike would go under the truck. I had always thought that maybe he just lays it down, he, like, low-sides it, and the leathers are smoking, and then... We're riffing back and forth with these great creative people, and it's like, what if it like transforms? And then he, he in previs, works out an idea, and then you send that to the visual effects house, which sort of works with animators to perfect that idea. But I have to say, Alex did an incredible job pitching action ideas to me, as did my storyboard team and my stunt team, and like, it's really great to collaborate with such a great group of artists.
So, all that to say, we come back around to this last little bit of the coda, and uh, I think this one's just for me. I just thought it was incredibly funny, and we were shooting this on the day, and Ryan went on a riff about the blood, and he just <laughs> was making this up. He'd written the be positive joke, but we uh, he was kind of in the spirit of... Uh, the never-ending death in Deadpool 2. <laughs> he went on this riff about I'm bleeding, I'm bleeding, I'm bleeding, and then now we've sort of cut it into this sort of spot where um, we reveal that he stabbed a guy with a brick, which we'd set up, obviously, two hours and 16 minutes ago in the uh, Pancake House. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate you guys, and um, I look forward to doing this again soon.